Hey, so um, I read a book um, before we started the church called The Forgotten Ways by Alan Hirsch. Really good book. And um, basically, um, Hirsch is this really, really smart, I think he's from Australia. So anyone with an accent, I think, is smart. And he um, was doing some study, and he learned about kind of the growth of the early church, which a lot of people kind of don't know how the early church grew and how much they grew. And then saw how kind of most churches today don't grow and was really confused on why that's the case. And so um, I want to show you a little graph of, that, that I made. And I, I couldn't find like a um, I saw one one time and I couldn't, I couldn't find it for you. So I took what I learned from the graph and I, I made this. So it's not exactly to scale. But what's, what's crazy is for the first 300 years um, of Christianity, it was illegal to be a Christian, number one. We didn't have buildings like we know them, number two. We didn't have the Bible bound with leather or in your pocket on an iPhone as we have it today. And there was not really a whole lot of professional paid um, people set aside to serve and to um, administer the church. So no buildings, no Bibles, no budgets, no pastors like we know them today. And in spite of all of that, the church grew from around 100 AD, uh, well, even back up, uh, you know, at the Ascension, there's like around like 150 people, I think. And then there's Pentecost, and there's like 5,000 people. By AD 100, they estimate that there's about 25,000 Christians in the world. 25,000. Like you could fit all of them inside the AT&T Center and still have room, okay? For the next 300 years, while it was illegal, while there's no buildings, budgets, Bibles, pastors, Christianity grew from 25,000 to conservative estimates are 25 million, liberal estimates are 35 million. So I don't know, you pick which number you want, but it's still a lot in 300 years. Just rapid growth by the church. And all along, Rome has on their law books that it's legal to crucify people for their faith. They're still crucifying people up and down Roman roads for 300 years, and that's just kind of status quo, okay? Now, that's pretty, just like, let's just say, how amazing is that? From 25,000 to 25 or 35 million people with none of the, and Alan Hirsch says, quote, none of the paraphernalia of church today. I like that word. You know, no technology, nothing. And then, um, so basically what happens is about 50% of the Roman population is Christian, um, and I uh, forget the number, but it's basically uh, Constantine wakes up one day and realizes he's killing half of his people. It's not a good political strategy. So he comes up, I think it's around 314, 320, somewhere around then, he declares that Christianity is now the official uh, religion of Rome. And so congratulations, everybody, you're now Christian. What, and what's crazy is that from that point on, we have what Alan Hirsch calls the 1700-year wedgie. <laughs> it's pretty funny where he basically hamstrings the church, and for the rest of that time, we have basically marginal growth. Because Christians are now in the center of power. Even if you go to San Antonio, if you go downtown to how our city was built, you have on one side the courthouse, you have on the other side where City Hall is, and what's in between City Hall and the courthouse if you've ever been downtown? San Fernando Cathedral, the church in the middle of the governing powers. Thank you, Constantine. That was a Constantine idea. That's why we call it the 1700-year wedgie, because Christians don't really handle it well when we're in power. 
right? So uh, that's called, that we kind of call that 1,700-year span uh, Christendom, right? And actually, Christendom's done. It's over with if you haven't read the news. So um, here's what I want to point out. Here's why I show you this, uh, this map, is that the one thing that the church had that we don't have today, we've got billions in real estate. We've got budgets. We have... Uh, you know, professional clergy, so to speak. I don't like using that, but... And we have, like, the Bible, like, amazing. Like, there's just a Bible hanging out up here. Like, hey, man, brand new Bible, just hanging out, just sitting up here. They didn't have that. What what they have? That persecution is what they had. Which meant, if you were going to be a Christian, you had to be a Christian. Kind of like what Tiff is talking about. There's probably people who claim Christ... They know nothing of his ways. They want to talk about Christ in unchristlike ways. They want to spread the kingdom in unkingdom ways. Right? That would not happen in the first 300 years of Christianity because that dude would get killed. And so he wouldn't do it because he wasn't legit, right? So this, there's actually this like incredible gift that the early church had in that there was this like self-selection process of if you're actually going to follow Jesus, you actually have to follow Jesus. Otherwise, you die, right? And so the result of actual people loving Christ legitimately was pretty infectious. And they spread, you know, greater than rabbits. And they went from 25,000, 25 million in just a short span of time, which is incredible, okay? So we have a lot to learn um, today from everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Revelation. So let's go to Revelation 2. Turn there with me. We're going to learn, uh, we're studying the letters of our Lord. If you're new with us, um, it's just the seven letters to the seven churches. It's Jesus' epistles to the churches in Asia Minor. And we have a little devotional guide. There's some on the very back. If you want them, they're free. I encourage you to grab one. And um, last week we looked at the church in Ephesus and what the Lord had to say to them. And today we're going to look at um, the church in Smyrna and see what Jesus says to them. And then, honestly, it's going to be, last week was easy. Um, <laughs> this week, we're going to have to work a little bit to see how we can apply it today, but I think there's some things we can apply. We're going to start in verse 8, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That sounds like fun. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So even today, if you have ears, you can hear what the Spirit is saying to these churches and learn from it. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, you're getting better at it. Good job. 
All right, so uh, a little bit of background on the city of Smyrna. Who's been to Smyrna? No one. All right, here's, uh, here's a little map. And uh, as we looked at last week, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. If you go, let's go to the next map. Sorry, there we go. Uh, here, right in the middle of underlying Ephesus, you get a, a bearings. And about 30 miles north-northwest is Smyrna, right there on the sea. Um, today, it's known as a different city called, I think it's pronounced Izmir. And we've got a picture of what it looks like today. It looks pretty awesome. So that's Smyrna. There was a church there, and Jesus wrote a letter to that church. That's what we just read. It's pretty incredible. They're right there on the sea. Um, so that's, that's, you go there in Turkey today, um, Izmir. What's incredible about um, Smyrna is that the word Smyrna means bitter. And, uh, but as you can see through that, that, that picture, it's an incredible place of wealth. There's a, there was a lot of wealth because it was on the sea. Right there, there's a lot of wealth. Now, we're going to go through the, the, some of these verses, and I want to pull out some things um, for, for you to, to kind of chew on. The first one is in verse 8. Um, in every one of these letters, Jesus describes himself differently to that congregation to give him context. And here he describes himself as the first and the last, and he emphasizes um, who died and came to life. You kind of hear that. Um, that's like the first word. And you know, I don't know if the church in Smyrna realized why he was highlighting that he died and that it wasn't just that he died, but that he came back to life. And as you'll see, is because some of them would die. So he's like, hey, I know death and resurrection, and I'm going to lead you into this thing. He's like, already it's good news. And then verse uh, 9, what's kind of cool about this letter is um, a lot of the letters will have, there's an, a, there's an affirmation or approval, and then there's an admonishment, like a point of correction. Smyrna doesn't have, I don't know if you caught it, Smyrna doesn't have a correction. Like Jesus says, I know what's going on, and he doesn't say, but I hold this against you. You've lost your first love, like you said to Ephesus. He doesn't, um, you know, it's just approval. Really, really, really incredible. That's good to chew on. Um, but verse 9, he says that he knows three things. He knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, and he knows the slander of those who say they're his people but, but aren't. Um, and I want to just highlight the difference between um, knowing and understanding. Okay, Jesus is not saying here, I'm aware that you're going through a tribulation. I'm aware of your poverty. I'm aware of the slander. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, I understand. He says, I know. Now, here's a different, here's a really good uh, explanation of the difference between knowing and understanding, okay? And this is one of my favorites, is you can be blind and you can love astronomy and you can understand, being blind, that the earth orbits around the sun. You get that? You understand astronomy, but you don't know what a sunset is. That make sense? Because you, you haven't experienced it. You understand the mechanics of a sunset or a sunrise or whatever, or a full moon or a blood moon or whatever, but you will never know it because you can't see, you can't experience it. You, know, you could be um, deaf and you could understand musical theory, but you would never know Louie Louie. <laughs> right? Which might be a blessing if you didn't know that. Okay, so, so Jesus doesn't say, I understand or I'm aware. He says, I know, right? Because Jesus, Jesus experienced. 
tribulation. He experienced poverty. He experienced slander from the Jews. Um, this was a result. Here's kind of the backstory of what happened is um, there, there was this like popular phrase at the time. There was this like political phrase. You know, we have these bumper stickers, um, you know, like, um, like Obama's was hope and change. Um, uh, Trump's was make America great again, right? Well, in the Roman time, they had Caesar's Lord. It's like, so on the back of a chariot is this little bumper sticker. And they had, you know, their version of a hat, whatever their favorite color was, a Caesar's Lord, okay? Sorry, yeah, myself. So um, the people of Smyrna would not say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord. Do you ever heard the phrase Jesus is Lord? It's a hack off of their version of Make America Great Again, which you can imagine the people who were like pro-Roman government love that one, okay? No, they didn't. They were killing them. <laughs> That's why he's writing the letter saying, I know your tribulation, I know the poverty, I know the slander. They were poor because the people in these Jewish communities were slandering about these Christians who would not say Caesar is Lord. They were saying Jesus is Lord. And it got the, the people who weren't Jewish or Christian, who were pagan, all riled up and kicked all of these uh, Christians out of their guilds, out of the trades. They were unemployed because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. Not just I know this testing, not just I know this, um, this like hard time. The word tribulation gives this idea of just a constant pressing. Just this, con- it won't let up. I mean, you've ever felt pain, it just won't let up. Like this tribulation, just this pressing until the grapes are crushed is the word for tribulation here. Jesus says, I know that feeling. And I know the fact that, that it has affected your well-being, your pocketbook, because of your faith. And I know what it's like to have people slander and lie about me. I mean, the Jews, when they brought Jesus to, um, to Pilate, they, they lied about him. He's stirring up a, he wasn't stirring up a commotion. You're the one stirring up a commotion, right? So he says, I know these things. Pretty incredible. Um, and then there's this, like, throwaway line. Can we put that verse back up there, please? There's this throwaway line that I missed. It's in parentheses. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And then, but you are rich. Pretty great. That's probably the word for us today. Is in, um, in, in their time, right? The world said, you are poor. Jesus says, you're rich. The church of Smyrna was rejected by men and women. They enjoyed the approval of Jesus. They were poor, but Jesus says, but you're rich. Pretty, pretty incredible. Um, I want to take you to another scripture, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is pretty cool. Is Paul says, uh, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is awesome, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the gospel in, in this little phrase. I know your poverty, um, but you are actually rich. Jesus became poor, and he can actually say to them, I know your poverty. And he was rich, Paul says. He, he knows what richness looks like. Jesus is essentially saying, I know your poverty, for I've shared it. And I know your true wealth, because I've given it to you. 
Jesus became poor so that we could become rich spiritually. And he says, I know you're rich because I'm the one that gave it to you. Incredible words, incredible words. Uh, what does this mean for today? Here's the deal. Most of us probably not going to give our lives for Jesus. We just want the opportunity. I've actually, I don't know anybody. I've been in church my entire life. And I've never, ever, I don't know anybody. Now, it happens. I go to Iran. It happens, right? But I don't personally know anybody. And so we kind of struggle. The challenge with this letter is what can we learn from it today? How can we learn from it today? Because chances are you're probably not going to um, die physically for Jesus. Probably not. You might. I don't know. Who knows? But probably not. Okay? So, um, yeah, that's our challenge is, is what does this look like? I want to ask uh, Jake to come here and uh, share a little story of maybe something that's maybe the closest we could get to. It's very similar, and it is really kind of appropriate in our context of Martin Luther King Jr. So he's going to share a story about a man who was rich, endured tribulation, endured poverty, endured slander. And it's crazy how he persevered through it. So <clears throat> there was a man named... Uh, so Wendell Berry wrote this book called What Are People For? And it's a book of essays about what are we here for? And it's a great book. I recommend it to anybody. But in it, one of the essays is called A Remarkable Man. And it's, uh, it's uh, an essay about a man named Nate Shaw, um, who grew up uh, a sharecropper's son in the 1880s. So, you know, put it in historical context, his grandparents were slaves, probably. Um, so this man knew about oppression and what it was like to be a black man in America. Um, and in the 1930s, he had two cars, he had donkeys, which, um, you know, were very expensive. He had land, his family was well off. He goes and has a altercation with a police officer and then spends decades in jail for it. Gets out, everything's gone. Everything was just taken from him. And so Wendell Berry is interviewing this man and um, just learning about his life and hearing about who he was and how he thought about things. Um, and in light of everything he'd gone through, Wendell Berry says this. It says, he has no talk of education explosions or metabolical cords. He does not say, freedom now, or black is beautiful, or power to the people. But Nate Shaw says, my color, the colored race of people on earth, they go on to shed themselves of these slavery ways. But it takes many a trip to the river to get clean. He says, they go on to win, they go on to win, but it's going to take great effort. It won't come easy. Somebody got to move and remove. It's going to take thousands and millions of words and thousands and millions of steps. And I hope to God that I won't be one of the slackers that would set down and refuse to labor to that end. I think the, um, the challenge for us who, honestly, in this room are, are mostly kind of upper middle class, a lot who are white, you know, and, and many who aren't. Um, the challenge for us is we read Smyrna and we're like, yeah, this sucks. Um, but I, I bet this man, when he, I bet when he read Smyrna, he knew exactly what that church was going through. And I think as Christ followers, 
it's helpful for us to just understand that, that those dynamics are at play. And I think it gives us the ability to, to realize, hey, there are, and it may, maybe, maybe, maybe you return, you're like, oh, I feel it. Um, but there are, there are lots of people out there who in very different ways experience tribulation and poverty and slander for whatever reason. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't show up with a poster board calling them names. Jesus says, I know. He has no correction for them. And so why do Christians have correction for people? Verse 10 and 11, he says, you know, do not fear what you're about to suffer. So while there's no, like, correction, it's like, it's not like they're, like, getting by with a parade and there's, you know, balloons everywhere. It's like, I'm not correcting you because you're going to die. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, this is incredible. The, Jesus knows what's going to happen, but for, but for his wisdom, he doesn't come in and stop it. He, he knows that there's a, a bigger purpose for this. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have to, I mean, it's incredible the foresight that Jesus has here, and yet, and we don't understand it, he lets it happen. And then here's the word. He doesn't just say be faithful. He says be faithful unto death. And I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you the crown of life. No promise of relief here. Now, here's what's crazy. Is the crown of life, we don't understand what that means. But Smyrna was a key participant in um, the, the, the athletic games. I don't know if they were Olympics at that time, but you get the idea. We had the Olympic games. All these nations come together. And, uh, and that's kind of an old, ancient tradition. And Smyrna participated in these athletic games. And whoever conquered the games got a lot of wealth, and they got a crown of life. They got literally a crown full of life. It was an olive crown. I'm sure you've seen this image. I think you know, something similar to this is you get this crown. You've seen the old Olympic images of people staying on the podium and they're getting, getting this crown. Today we have gold medals. This is what they had. So Jesus is using this language that they're f- really familiar with, these the Olympic games. And he says, be faithful. It's going to be hard. You're going to be tested. But if you're faithful unto death, I'm going to give you that crown of life. And at the very end, he uses the word conquer. And this is all laced with language that they would be familiar with. Smyrna was wealthy. He says, you're rich. They love the Olympic games. He says, I'm going to give you the crown of life. You're going to conquer. This would have hit right home to these people. Here's uh, a few lessons. I think just three lessons I want to highlight for us. Is the first lesson that we can pull from this, is it cost to be faithful to Jesus? There's a cost to it. Um, there's a lot of people who talk about Christ, and, and I don't know why they do it. I think um, when I've heard people do it, it seems like there's this motivation to win people to the Lord, and so you're trying to like play on all sorts of things. And, and, and many people hear the gospel is that God wants your life to be better here. Um, you, you know, you're, you know, I mean, you know, Jesus wants your best life right here. You know, like, like if you just, if you were just to trust Him, and then when you fall on hard times, oh, there must be sin in your life. You know, I mean, but all the heroes in the Bible fell on hard times. John the Baptist got his head cut off. Cut, cut off, not because he had sin in his life, because he called out Herod for cheating on his brother's wife. 
It costs to be a faithful Christian. It just does. Bonhoeffer wrote about this, talking about cheap grace and costly grace. Have you ever read about that? It costs to be a Christian. It costs us in America less than it costs the Christians in China. It just, you know, it costs us less. Look at it. We have, I know it's not the, I don't, it's not the greatest building in the world. We got an air conditioner. We got a heater. We got HD projectors. Like, yeah, because God always has a big TV in his living room. Like, um, you have chairs. You have like, we have, like, we're rich. We're filthy rich. Probably most people haven't feared that the government's going to walk in here and arrest us. You know, like, this is crazy. But there's places in the world where, where this happens. So I think the first lesson is just to realize the gift that God's given us right now and be thankful for that. Second thing is Jesus knows whatever you're going through. Whatever it is you're going through. Whatever it is, Jesus knows. He's aware, he understands, but he knows. He's, he's faced that temptation. And then the third thing that I want to highlight is um, Jesus teaches us what it means to be rich. Like, I want to be rich. I want to be rich in heaven, first of all. Um, poverty's not fun. I grew up in poverty. Grew up in a trailer park with roaches. That's not fun. Jesus teaches us what it means to be truly rich. And I just kind of read a... Um, this uh, par- parable he tells, it ties into this. It's in Luke 12. It's a parable of the rich fool. And um, I don't know, do we have this? I don't know if I gave it to you. Do we have it here? I think we do, maybe. There we go. Um, <clears throat> so the backstory is Jesus teaching, and this one brother says, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to share his inheritance, which is never interrupt Jesus when he's teaching. And so he then tells a parable about possessions, because these brothers are fighting about possessions. This is the context of Luke 12. And he says to them, to both of them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's say that together, right? One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Marketers don't believe that. There's always an upgrade. So he told them this parable to help them understand. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said to himself, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And check this out. I will say to my, what's the next word? Soul. Remember that. He says to his soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus ends the parable, gives us the commentary, this last sentence. So this is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
I wonder if Jesus was thinking of this parable he, in his mind when he was speaking to the church in Smyrna because they did not have treasures to lay up for themselves. They were giving their lives for Jesus. And he says, they're slandering against you. You're in tribulation. You're poor. But you are filthy rich towards me. Incredible. I think that's the one, like, we can pull that lesson out here. Are you filthy rich towards God? Or have we jumped on the dumb treadmill of our culture of just storing up more and more and more stuff that doesn't make us happy, so we buy more and more of it. It doesn't make us happy, so we buy more and more, and we're insane because we think more of the thing that doesn't work is going to actually start working. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So here's, I think, the gospel message from Smyrna. Jesus says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I know your tribulation. Think of his tribulation. He says, I know your poverty. Remember his poverty. He says, I know the slander. Remember the slander. Remember how they, they said, they blindfolded him and beat him and said, if you're the son of God, why don't you prophesy who's about to, to beat you? The reality is Jesus could have prophesied who their grandmother was. And he didn't. He says, fear not. Think of how he set his face towards Jerusalem without fear, just going for it without turning away. He says, be faithful unto death. See Jesus faithful on the cross, asking God to forgive the people who spit on him. And he says, I will give you the crown of life. See him crowned as the king of kings on resurrection morning. Lord, this hard message, it's a hard word. It's one that our flesh doesn't like. I know I've become comfortable with comfort. And I don't want to be poor towards you. I don't want to be unfaithful. I don't want to be a rich fool. I want to love you more than the government or a party, or a slogan. I want to love you even if there's tribulation. I want to love you even if I lose everything. I want to love you even if I'm rejected and lies are spread about me. I want that type of faith. And I'm grateful, Lord, that you are the author and the finisher of the faith. And that that is something that I don't have to work up, but it is something that I can receive as a gift from you. Because I do want to face you one day. And here, well done, good and faithful servant. 
I pray for all of us here in this room that you would help us. Even if it means sobering us up, help us to understand that there is a cost to saying Jesus is Lord. Help us to count that cost, to consider it, and to sell everything we have to buy the field that has the treasure in it. It's in your name we pray.